Good afternoon. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to welcome you here this afternoon to hear what John Manzoni, Chief Executive of the Civil Service, has to say. What I think he's going to say is something that the Institute is emphatically supportive of, which is an emphasis on the professions and the leadership of the functions within the civil service, on the professionalization of the civil service, and on the development of a deep body of skills and expertise there. And it is something that we've been doing a lot of work on. Julian McRae led a report last year, Julian sitting here, um, on this, but it's been a long time theme of the institutes and something that we're delighted that John has been uh, advocating in a very sustained way since indeed you came um, here three years ago to make some of these points. We're also doing work later this year picking up those themes and also looking at the turnover and uh, pay and promotion structures within the civil service and whether there is something that could be done to encourage the development of more expertise. Um, but uh, with that, let me, uh, let me stop talking and hand over to John who's going to tell us what he's thinking about a civil service fit for the future. John. Bronwyn, thank you very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. I, it's unusual for me in this forum to read a speech, but that's what I'm going to do today. Um, so thank you, Bronwyn, for the introduction, and thank you for inviting me back here to the Institute um, uh, for the topic of transformation of the civil service. I made, I think, one of my first speeches uh, in this role as Chief Executive uh, here about three years ago. And it's fair to say, as I think you'll agree, there's, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot happened since that, since then, in these last three years. We've had two changes of government, we've had an EU referendum, uh, on the back of which we've created from scratch and staffed two new departments, one of which, the Department for Exiting the European Union, is coordinating the work uh, of more than 300 Brexit-related work streams across government. And I should just take this opportunity, I think, to thank Philip Rycroft and his team, uh, who runs now DEXU, for uh, doing a fantastic job. And I think they deserve our collective thanks for that work. Back in 2015, I made the observation that civil servants were brilliant, talented people doing too much. Not much has changed. Uh, but I also made four specific observations. The first... Uh, that as a result of progressively outsourcing delivery, the civil service had evolved to focus mainly on policy making. Our policy strength will always be important, but we had lost much of our capability to implement and deliver those policies and services. Second observation was that the fiscal envelope was continuing to shrink, the standard efficiency drive had run its course, and to get the, to the next level of efficiency, uh, while at the same time improving the effectiveness of service delivery, we needed a more fundamental transformation of how we worked as a civil service. The third observation I made was that we needed to begin to break down the silos that existed, learn to work across boundaries, and take a more collaborative approach. And lastly, I said that we needed to move our leadership approach on from a focus on pure intellect to one that embraced depth of experience, from elegant explanations to delivered solutions. And I then set out four priorities to address these observations aimed at setting us up to be fit for the 21st century. First, to increase the numbers of people in Whitehall with delivery skills and to offer clear career pathways so that they would feel valued and they could build their experience within the civil service. Second, to develop functional leadership across government. Third, to build our planning and performance management capability. And finally, to evolve the model of leadership in the civil service, developing a pipeline of credible, confident and experienced leaders. The second of those priorities, functional leadership, is integral to delivering all of the others. And I want to return to it now to provide some context for the Institute's forthcoming series on this and also to reflect on our progress to date, because we have not stood still. We now have nine cross-government functions, each with a dedicated experienced leader and championed at permanent secretary level. These are complemented by dozens of professional networks that connect civil servants right across government. From the operational delivery profession, our largest with more than 240,000 civil servants, to the international trade profession, which is our newest and is launching, in fact, today, this afternoon. These advances are important. I believed then, as I do now, that deploying professional expertise across the system through a functional structure is the only way to tackle the transformation needed to meet the requirements of being both more efficient and more effective. 
And since then, of course, we have Brexit. It's been said before, but this is the biggest and most complicated peacetime task the civil service has faced. That challenge is not a distraction or a substitute for other priorities. It's an opportunity and one that we must seize. Because at the same time as the task of delivering EU exit strengthens the argument for strong functional leadership, it also provides an opportunity to accelerate the changes we're already making to implement the complex tasks ahead. To remind you, I believe that the functions have three primary roles. First is to set standards, because without a consistent approach to working with the private sector, every contract is different. Without a consistent approach to cyber security, it's every department for themselves. Without consistency of pay structures, there's arbitrage across departmental boundaries. Without consistent data standards, there are no linkages between departments. And without consistent technology standards in buildings, it sometimes isn't even possible for a visiting employee from one department to log on in another department's building. Second, functions have a leading role in building the skills and capability we require. Because as I've said many times before, we need to build professionalism and experience back into the civil service. Making shared services work needs people who have done it before. Building sophisticated and flexible relationships with the private sector needs experienced commercial people to move us on from the transactional price-based relationships that still exist across parts of our system. We need to have people with technical and data skills as we increasingly engage with citizens in a digital world. And we need proper project management skills to undertake the complex projects the civil service is now involved in. And third, functions help shape cross-government strategies. Because we needed to see, for instance, the multiple connections a company like Carillion had across government so that we were able to respond to that situation and protect public services in the way that we did. Something that would simply not have been possible two or three years ago. We need to have mechanisms for building careers and developing our people to be the best that they can be and that needs cross-government coordination. We need to have consistency in how we build new digital systems because the efficiencies because of the efficiencies in the economies that come from having, from having common platforms. We need to bring multiple departments into the same buildings, not just for the sake of economy, but for better, smarter, more collaborative working. And we need to have common ways of doing transactional processes so that we can benefit from the huge economies of scale that government can bring to bear. To do otherwise would be such a waste of taxpayers' money. Seen through these lenses, the appeal of functional models seems obvious. But historically we haven't been set up like that, and to make it so is not a quick fix. We have to build professional pathways to attract people to join the civil service and plan their careers, to give them the experience they need over time, and that is now starting to happen. We have to begin to value skills in our leaders. Intellect alone is not enough. We need more, because otherwise the system simply won't be able to support the implementation challenges that we face today. We need to learn new ways of working because a cross-government matrix structure is in itself new and it has to add value to what went before and that takes time to learn and skilled people to implement. And of course at the same time we must continue to deliver services that meet the standards and convenience citizens have come to expect as 21st century consumers. So transforming what we deliver means transforming how we deliver it. And that delivery needs the skills and experience I've described. Returning to the current challenges of Brexit and the need to use this moment as an opportunity to accelerate. It demands that we both think through a complex set of problems and deliver the solutions on the ground within a fixed time period. We can't do that unless we approach this challenge differently to the way we have done things in the past. And the good news is, it's already happening. We are accelerating the changes we need, and they are helping us to deliver what we need to deliver. Just to take a few examples where we're leveraging the functional structure in that task. Many of the Brexit-related projects require multiple new contracts and procurements. We're already using the commercial teams to help structure those for maximum effectiveness in the market. We're setting up ways of accessing skills in the market that will deliver right across government, not just department by department. 
Many Brexit projects require new technology in one form or another, and those systems are being built to our new digital standards in agile ways with new and different partners, allowing an iterative development process. Even three years ago, that would not have happened because we did not have the digital skills in-house or the awareness to do it. We have a group of experienced project leaders, many of whom have been trained through our major projects leadership programmes and are now being deployed into the most complex Brexit projects. These are the leaders who will help us get projects through that difficult gap between designing a policy and putting it into action, as Tony Meggs has called it recently, the valley of death. This is all work in progress, but we've come a long way in a short period of time. It's a fact that we don't have all the implementation skills that we need in-house. Uh, but we're building them quickly and we've hired more than 5,000 people into eight departments over the last 12 months in order to help. And we're using the current imperatives to accelerate new joined-up ways of working. We've established a new border delivery planning group of officials across Whitehall to tackle the complex issues around making sure our borders continue to work effectively post-EU withdrawal. I'm not going to get into the complexities of the negotiations here, but this new group will create and oversee a joined-up implementation plan, drawing together the 30 or so departments and agencies that interact at our borders. Responsibility for delivery, of course, remains in the departments, but the cross-departmental group will define a plan and hold departments to account for delivering their piece of it. That goes against the grain of traditional accountabilities in our civil service system. Many more challenges, and not just in regard to Brexit, now transcend the boundaries between departments, from healthcare to justice to housing and to benefits. We can learn from the borders experience and apply that elsewhere over time. The matrix structure introduced by the functions helps us to address those cross-cutting issues because it cuts across the vertical departmental silos and en enables more transparency, lets information flow, allows us to target expertise and generally work more collaboratively. I've used Brexit examples, but there are many others outside Brexit. And I'm not going to go into great detail here because I've done that in other fora, but just to take a few examples... We've launched the Government Property Agency. Over time, this will help us make more collective and collaborative use of our property portfolio. We've already announced 13 government hubs across the country, mostly predominantly HMRC, but with many of them including other departments. Just the other day, I was at our new building in Canary Wharf, which will host eight different public bodies. These hubs together will impact and benefit around 40,000 public servants. That's a very material change, and we have yet to announce another eight to ten hubs over the course of the next few years. And those will host even greater numbers of departments than the ones that we have just announced. We've now stabilised stabilized and are seeing the benefits from the various centres of expertise that we have across the civil service, from the shared services centres, which are taking shape across government, to the debt market integrator joint venture, which has collected 17% more debt than would otherwise have been lost to government. And our Crown Hosting joint venture, which has again proven hugely successful in efficiently hosting legacy systems and has saved many hundreds of millions of pounds. The digital transformation of public services means we're delivering in ways which people expect and are becoming more and more routine for government. At Newcastle Crown Court last month, I saw firsthand how video hearings are revolutionising the way our court system operates. In the first month of starting to resolve small claims online, there are litigants who have resolved their case in just two hours. And prosecutors are getting to work digitally too, with online pleas for offences like fair evasion. This is groundbreaking modernisation, which takes an enormous management focus and huge effort to deliver. HMRC is trailblazing the adoption of artificial intelligence and robotics for mass repetitive tasks. And we've recently established a centre of excellence to accelerate the adoption of this technology across government. And we're mining the potential in data and prospecting in emerging areas like geospatial data to unlock value across the economy. All of these are in motion and over the last two or three years have contributed material savings and efficiency to government. I could go on, but the point is that significant change is already being delivered. And our task is to accelerate that change, not only using the imperative of Brexit, 
but our impatience to change and modernise our civil service to meet the challenges of today. So the question is, what next? What must we do to sustain and accelerate this progress? So I want to highlight three areas. How we're codifying the skills we recruit and reward, and hence embedding new career paths across the organisation. How we need to think about funding the functions and the centre going forward. And how we might adjust our governance to accommodate the changes that I've described. To take the first of these, we want to continue to attract and develop people with professional skills within the civil service. The, inter the interesting thing about setting up a functional structure is that we're now organised much more like the outside world. Many of our recent external hires have entered the civil service via the functions because they can now see how and where they can add value and the organisation looks more familiar to them than perhaps it has in the past. But it's no use bringing these people in with functional skills and then assuming we can judge them against the criteria that aren't matched to their personal career experience. If we did that, over time they'd just leave again. And that's why we're launching now uh, success profiles, an expansion of our competency-based approach to recruitment and promotion, widening it to include more robust and wide-ranging wide selection criteria. This change, in my view, is really, really important because it bears on what qualities and skills we value and promote. It relates to building experience so that we're no longer creating generalists by default, but people with broad and deep experience in delivery and implementation. The new success profiles will be used for recruitment and promotion and over time will allow us to evaluate candidates and what they've done before, what their actual experience, behaviours and values are, rather uh, than on how they answer a competency questionnaire. This means we can encourage people to build a career path and be promoted within that career path to build deeper experience and depth in their profession and that is a significant change. It will require quite a change in our leaders too, involving them much more in, in interviewing and performance managing their people. It may also be time to think about how we fund the centre of government. This is something I'd like to see as part of the 2019 spending round. This is, there is always a tension, of course, because in the end the functions only exist to help the delivery teams and departments deliver their outputs. There is therefore a strong argument to insist on the rigour and discipline of demand-driven mechanisms to fund the functions. It ensures that the functions don't do things which don't add value. But it can also be inefficient and slow. Our new IT system for sensitive information took far longer than it should have because the funds had to be negotiated with each separate department. To leverage some of the centres of expertise I've talked about sometimes need central funding to build consistency across government. The same imperative applies to building a new recruitment platform that everybody can use. Accelerating the rollout of our commercial capability also needs to be addressed centrally so that we can do it quickly. Our assessment and development centre has, has been piloted with the big departments. It's assessed more than 1,100 people against professional commercial standards. Now we're extending it to arm's length delivery bodies. So I'm hopeful that we can make a sensible case for funding the centre in a different way while still retaining the good discipline to ensure that the functions only do what adds value. And finally, while we've built our functional structure into government over the last few years, we have not reviewed the overall governance within the civil service to reflect that. This is internal plumbing and not, frankly, the stuff of headlines, but nonetheless important in how we operate as an organisation. There is no single right way. Our structures are inherently complex and I don't pretend to have the answers today, but it's something we must start to consider over the next period. So there's more to do. We've taken up the enormous challenge of Brexit, and while we tackle it, indeed as part of tackling it, we're building our future capability and accelerating toward that goal. Ultimately, this is all about people. The citizens we work for are civil servants and the civil servants themselves. They're already doing extraordinary things to deliver the government's priorities. They're also in the middle of huge changes and improvement that everybody in government has to embrace. As senior leaders, it's up to us to create the structures within which they can be most effective. Give them the modern tools and workplaces to do the best job they can, providing the best public services and the training and experience to realise their potential. That is the task before us and we're on the way. 
Success means we will remain one of the most admired public institutions in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I think we're due to take questions now. Yes, you are. <laughs> John, thanks very much. Um, refreshing to hear Brexit described as an opportunity, not just the massive opportunity cost that it often is. So we go into this discussion. May I thank Oracle as well, our partners, not just in this event, but actually in a lot of this work on the functions and on the leadership of that. You've been immensely thoughtful and committed to those issues. Thank you. Um, John, you, you're sketching out, um, which, is, which is very interesting. It, the idea of bringing more people into the professions, into uh, the functions within the civil service. Can you describe for us how someone could have a career largely entirely you know, within one profession, and could that person get to the top? So I think in the you know I think the point is um, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, if you uh, if you think about how industry or other parts of the economy are organised, they they tend to be you know people have a what I call a career anchor. So what is it that you actually bring to the table in any conversation? And the question is, what is your career anchor? What is your experience? What are you expert in? Um, uh, and what dawned on me when I talked to a lot of our senior civil servants, it wasn't obvious what the career anchor was. Uh, and so therefore, that is why I because think... Because they were generalists. And they well, moved because they were generalists. And I have to tell you that I... I have lived in a world, I am a generalist really, except that I'm ultimately an engineer and I have 30 years of experience running complex companies and organisations. But there is a real danger in, uh, every organisation needs generalists and every complex organisation needs generalists at the top. But if those generalists forget how to leverage and use the real skills of the specialists, of the people with deep experience, if they forget that, that becomes really, really difficult. I have personal experience in this, and it relates to Texas City, which blew up, killing many, many people in 2005. And I believe that we had put, in, and I was working in BP at the time, and, and we had put too many generalists between the top and the people who really understood what was going on in the ground. That is why I feel so passionate about enabling the deep experience and skills of individuals to be leveraged right at the top. And if you ever forget that uh, and forget how to leverage that, that deep experience or indeed don't have that deep experience anywhere in the structure, it becomes, everything becomes, you know, problem 101. Mm. Uh, or first principles or something and that's where as opposed to using mm. that judgment so the mm. question is how do we build career paths which is mm. why these success so you, profiles you, you describe bringing more uh, people in and saying perhaps the civil service you know more reflects um, or seems more similar to where they're coming from than perhaps it did in the in the past so you're bringing in more specialists in general and, and what is the career you're offering them? so and we have to build can the it career go up path. to permsec well and the answer i mean can it today probably mm. not but mm. can it in the future I, there's mm. no question i think it can mm. it doesn't mean that you stay so there's all sorts of t an individual a commercial person might choose to come in and we have built a, a career mm. path with levels of achievement often uh, accredited levels of achievement up through that person's career that person might choose to stay to become you know a very very senior commercial specialist but equally at some point in that person's career they may choose to say i'm actually going to go and broaden but still having built an anchor of commercial expertise mm -hmm. you know you can't sit opposite the chief executive of Serco and talk about whether or not they're making too much money or too little money unless you have a depth of expertise and experience which allows you to have that conversation. And there is absolutely, no, I keep saying, there is no reason why in the civil service we can't give technologists, project people, commercial people, HR people, finance people, the depth of experience. We do more of all of that stuff than any company in this country. Mm. And so therefore, uh, it's just that we don't seem to value it. So what we've got to do is build those career paths which allow those people to come in and they can always make choices. And actually by the time you get to the top you need to have done something other than just the commercial thing and that's fine. But if we do that in a managed way uh, then there's no reason why we can't have really deep commercial expertise sitting at the top of the civil service. Mm -hmm. Now I've brought them in at the head of the functions and we've built it down but there really is no... And of course the cultural change is there's no reason why somebody with an HR background or somebody with a commercial background can't sit 
and be a permanent secretary. Mm. Actually, it turns out I'm a permanent secretary. I keep reminding myself, as well as the mm. chief executive, and I haven't actually got a great deal of experience with dealing with ministers, but so far, so good, right? So there's no reason why you can't have uh, 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 and build these careers, and that is why the building of career paths is so important, which is mm. what we're doing. Mm. How much turnover within a department is good for the civil service? Um, the ter- well, it, it, this is an old discussion, yeah. obviously, and, and you know, in many ways, churn is, is, is very damaging. On the other hand, you do want a, a bit. To, yes, of course, and you need a healthy mobility. amount. The IFG figures are something like 8% per department, but 15% in some. So, so yes, they re- I can't remember the and numbers, it, but they it, range. It bounces around a bit, and obviously it's, it's, and, it's, and it's different general, in the Brexit department. Uh, the, yeah. the combination um, of, uh, of perhaps not um, valuing uh, an individual, uh, you know, seeing something all the way through, um, uh, that is, uh, you know, not, n- not good. Plus, of course, we are in a very complex world of remuneration and such things, and young people, of course, want progress, and we have to solve that issue as well. So why wouldn't they go for a promotion over there or go for a promotion over there? You would if you were them. Uh, and I understand all of that, and that's why this is a... I mean, it's a bit in the in the wiring and the plumbing, but it is absolutely fundamental to allowing us to create for a young person a career and actually so therefore... But you can't build the expertise that you're talking about if there is so much incentive for correct. Mo- movement uh, in correct. order to get promotion. So you pay. have to change what you value and you have to then allow our remuneration structures to reward people for staying where they are and getting better at what they do. And you do that within the 1% uh, pay cap? That it's all, had? everything's a compromise, right? <laughs> but actually the answer is, yeah, I mean, we must do that and that's what yeah. we're working on. Mm. Uh, and how do you create the space for that? Mm. And, and these are, uh, you know, we're not done, mm. we're, but, but these are absolutely uh, changes which are being sort of engineered progressively mm. over time. Mm. What ha- happens to accountability if the functions get more and more... Uh, important. Um, uh, you know, a select committee wants to talk to someone from the civil service, do they call the permanent secretary or do they call the head of function? So it's an interesting question and I have lived in a world where we have attempted uh, to, to sort of codify um, accountabilities in a matrix structure and that is actually, that gets really complicated really quickly. Uh, uh, I, my own view, for what it's worth, is that we, we should retain uh, um, clear accountability, what I call down the line. Right, so, but you're, by matrix, you're talking about someone in a function being responsible to the head of function, but also to the permanent secretary of theirs. No, but I, I actually mean that there are, there are two influences on any one decision. There's a functional yeah. influence, by the right. way, this yeah. is the way you do the commercial, and there's a li- what I call the yeah. line yeah. influence, which is the person ultimately accountable yeah. for the outcome of that transaction, let's say. So I actually believe we should not muddy the line accountability. What we have to do is to create a behaviour set that, you know, usually in the world, Accountability 101 says, I'm in charge, I've got it all. Accountability 102 usually says, actually, I am in charge, but it's usually best to ask for some help because I, I'm in charge to get the best outcome and that usually doesn't all sit in my line. And so that is a, it's, it's about a behavioural structure which allows the deployment of expertise at the point of execution, the professionalisation at the point of execution, as a natural thing in an organisation. And where I've grown up, that's what happens. That people, somebody in charge of something says, actually, I need some commercial help and I need some technical help and I need some project help. That is a behavioural response which becomes natural when these things are working well. I I, you know, there are certain areas of accountability that we can change, certainly in the matter of development of people. The functions sometimes have, especially if the career paths are structured along functional lines, you can put, you can strengthen the accountability of the function for the development of people, and that's the area where most of the accountability could change. But the accountability for output and delivery, I think, needs to stay in the vertical. Mm-hmm. It's just that it needs to look for help. Right. You talked right at the top of the speech about um, bringing in more um, expertise on delivery or building up the, the expertise on delivery, saying, look, we... Uh, actually, over the years, looking back, we've um, you know, we've really focused on the policy making, which we've kept in house, but we've outsourced a lot of the, uh, the the delivery. What does that mean for numbers? I mean, that that is potentially quite significant. Um, it, well, it depends whether you're looking at numbers, value, costs, or effectiveness. 
Uh, it may well. I mean, so for instance, uh, uh, you know, we have a, a definite trend in, our, uh, in IT today mm. where we're disaggregating previously outsourced monolithic contracts uh, and increasing the capability of our digital resource and our technology uh, capability mm. in-house. So, so the disaggregation of those contracts does require us to have more in-house uh, IT uh, expertise. So that's increasing the numbers of IT people, if you like, and digital and technical people. That we have. And that's the right thing to do. But actually, uh, 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 that, that results in a way more effective um, and, and actually net-net cost cheaper uh, and greater value output than the previous old monolithic outsourced contract. Mm. So the numbers may go up uh, in certain areas, uh, but it's certainly not the case. I mean, the, we, you know, we shouldn't be doing it if it's less effective or, mm. you know, net-net uh, less value. Mm. So increasing attention on government outsourcing of all kinds, uh, not just because of Carillion, but because it seems to me Labour has successfully put on the table a sort of a, 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 um, a demand, if not a, a, you know, a prod, to look at 30 years or so of of outsourcing and moving the boundary between public and private back and so on and what value the country has got for that and it's something that the Institute is looking very closely at. Um, what do you think we should think about um, the commercial profession which has been involved in quite a bit of that both in the striking of contracts but also the management of them? So I think um, uh, I'm bound to say this aren't I but um, I think we have uh, so first of all, we, we have to differentiate the different mm. kinds of outsourcing. And this is vast. I mean, this is a vast area. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so, so IT I've just talked about. Mm. You know, wh where I think the industry has uh, been somewhat, um, uh, uh, you know, has, has led itself into a place that it wouldn't wish to be, and, and the government has been somewhat complicit in this, is the area of, comp of, of FM, uh, fi uh, you know, facilities management, and some some of those companies have, have sort of you know been expert at winning government contracts as opposed to expert in providing any particular mm -hmm. services. Um, uh, and uh, but actually, curiously, it, I mean, in the Korean's case and in many of the others uh, which are struggling. Um, uh, uh, by the way, we watch them all very carefully. We're in touch. You know, we understand it all. Uh, but it's been the mix of construction activity and. Uh, facilities management that, that, that was a particular problem for Carillion. I think, you know, in the end, uh, it has been shown time and time again that in the right circumstances, um, outsourcing is a very, very effective way of delivering uh, a particular output uh, and a particular service to government in the right circumstances. Mm. Um, uh, you know, where there's a strong... And, and we want to do that, and I think we've concluded, uh, in, you know, and having looked internally, we've concluded that that's right, in the right circumstances. We have to be more intelligent in how we maintain a healthy market. We mustn't... You know, this is why I make the point about transactional and price-based. If we simply drive for the lowest price every time, uh, you know, we'll get what we deserve. We'll get low-priced activities, and then in the end, the margins will be squeezed out, and, and, the, and the industry will become um, unhealthy. There are companies also, will pull out or merge together, yeah, and you risks, will end up without the market. We need. also have yeah. to think about where are we transferring risk, and are the margins commensurate with that transfer of risk? Are we actually transferring risk, or does it just come straight back onto government? All of those are questions, but of course, they all take sophisticated understanding and knowledge internally in order to even have those conversations. And then the only other point that I will make is that we also do some, uh, if you like, really complicated things as government. We, we, we do outsource and use the private sector to do some things which, frankly, um, uh, you know, nobody does. You, there's, there's not lots of... Uh, there wasn't a market of companies looking to... Um, uh, uh, you know, rehabilitate prisoners or whatever else, the complex areas that we outsource. And in those cases, you know, what we learn, and we're always learning, but what we learn, I think, is that we, we, we need to be really thoughtful about how we do that. We can't just rush, because nobody can price that service right first time. So, first of all, we need to understand what it would cost us to do internally. We probably ought to test it a few times. We just need to get more sophisticated about how we do that. I still believe that the private sector, correctly positioned, correctly incented, can be an enormous benefit, uh, and the public and the private mm. sector need to work in partnership to deliver the outcomes that we want. But it takes a sophistication on both sides, and my whole mm. point is we haven't really had that sophistication on the inside, and now we're building it, mm. now we need to be engaged in that mm. conversation. Well, thanks for that. Our concern as the Institute is to make sure that the, the good that, that, that does work isn't thrown out 
um, right. as people reevaluate some of the things that are working less well. Let me ask you a couple of things about Brexit. I said uh, at the start, it is refreshing to hear I someone may or may not describe answer. it as, as, uh, uh, as, as an opportunity, which actually chimes with a lot of our uh, experience of how it has thrown departments uh, together and thrown people um, to work together. The, mo the most frequent question that we get is, is the government ready? What's your answer? I may or may not answer your questions on Brexit. The answer is, of course, I mean, are we as ready as I would like? Mm. Answer, no. Are we moving in the right direction? Yes. Is momentum building? Yes. Um, the whole point, I mean, this is why I make the point about the Brexit activity. The, it is the combination. It's, first of all, it's a highly complex, one of the most complex mm. solution sets um, uh, 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 which, which has to be resolved. But it is in addition to that... Um, the implementation of that solution set in a time certain. Mm. That is a serious task. Um, uh, and I'm not going to sit here and say, absolutely, we got it nailed. Mm. I am sitting here saying we are absolutely moving in the right direction. And, uh, you know, as I say, we've hired 55,000 mm. people. Um, I believe we still have further to go. It's not really about the numbers, mm. actually. It's about the particular skills, mm. the spe specificity of... You know, that project, we need to do that. And, of course, we are also, as a civil service, it's not... Um, uh, we, are, we are working, uh, uh, you know, a number of scenarios, mm -hmm. not just one scenario, because mm -hmm. we went You're quite... Having to run parallel versions to run of the parallel. future. So, so, you know, it is, a, it is, a, it is uh, absorbing a great deal of management attention, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. Uh, the headlines tend to be on the solution set issue, but there is an enormous focus on the implementation, which is not in the headlines, but it is mm -hmm. absolutely underpinning the capability of this country to deliver whatever is ultimately... Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, ultimately uh, negotiated and whatever the agreement is. And I think that, you know, that, is, that, that deserves our full attention and it is getting our full attention. Uh, departments, um, have they got the skills they need? You, you talked about the 5,000 right, uh, that are uh, going into eight departments in the past 12 months. Has that taken us quite a way? Towards it has taken us yeah. quite a way. I don't yeah. think we're where we need to be yeah. yet. Yeah. I think we've still yeah, got, uh, we've still got um, uh, you know, things to do. We're setting up, I mentioned, you know, we're setting up structures... There's a lot, it's very interesting, there's a lot of, again, the private sector is very keen to help. Mm. Uh, we have to structure that help in the right way, we have to invite that help into our system in the right way, uh, uh, and we are now setting up structures in order to, to be able to allow us to do that, and that's, I think, helpful. Uh, but this is, a, you know, this, is a, this is going to be a journey mm. that does continue. Mm. Who's responsible for it being ready? Is that the Prime Minister's? Uh, oh, that's above my pay grade, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I, I guess, um, I mean, you know, we're the, the civil, well, who's responsible for anything in the civil service? Uh, uh, I, you know, I just take it as my job to, to be pushing extremely hard on the, on the implementation and the mm. delivery capability. So personally, I think I have a responsibility to say we've got to be ready for this. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and, and, um, and this is really the whole point. I mean, I think, you know, this is why this is a moment of acceleration, mm. because... Uh, this combination of solution space and delivery in a time certain is, is really, of course, something which, which takes both extraordinary, um, you know, the, I mean, you need extraordinary intellect and capacity and capability to deal with the solution space, mm. and you need extraordinary delivery skills to deal with the delivery. Both of these have come at the same time, mm. and that is why, actually, this is the moment of opportunity mm. and acceleration. Mm. But obviously, there is a political responsibility in the end, and that, I mean, as you no, described, have to decide uh, the, the, civil, the civil service is yes, it is to say what we're aiming for. The civil service has, I've been asked to sustain an enormous degree of ambiguity in planning for all this future. But uh, no, thank you for that. Let's, let's take some other questions. We seem to be more in darkness than usual. Is that maybe just pretty brighter outside? All right, let's, let's start right right in the front here. I was struck that you, when you talk about the civil service, you talk about the civil service the, as the organisation as a singular noun, which isn't always how it feels in the, the further parts of it. You obviously talk a lot about the functional strength of the civil service and therefore, in a sense, strengthening that singularity. But then you went on to talk about um, preserving the, broadly the current structure of line accountability. In a world where we do have 30 agencies at the border, do you think your model is consistent with the pattern of line accountability staying the same into the, into the future? With the pattern of accountability staying line the same? Line accountability. So 
is the current basic structure of the civil service sustainable in the world that you're wanting to push us towards? Okay, and would you like to say who you are? I'm Stefan Czarniowski from DWP. Thank you. So I think the answer, I mean, is, is it, the question is about whether or not, you know, the, the, the structures are, are sustainable. I mean, my view on this, actually, in the end, you can put a st any structure uh, you like around a complex organisation, and, and it's not actually that which, which, ultimately, um, which ultimately matters. I can draw a bunch of boxes differently if that's what we choose to do. Uh, my, my point about accountability is that we need to be clear who is accountable for an output but then we need to have the sophistication to understand when to ask for help. And there's a natural, I mean, you know, this isn't, this isn't nobody's wrong here, but, but I've seen it so many times before. I mean, people, no, I'm fine, thank you. But actually, no, we're not fine, thank you. We do need the help. So this is a behavioral and cultural uh, learning. What you have to do is to set the sort of scaffolding and framework in place so that that help is available, at, you know, when called. Sometimes you've got to push, and that is, of course, why uh, when, you, when you operate in a matrix, you need extraordinarily good judgment and wisdom uh, to know when to push yourself onto something, when to wait to be invited, when to cajole, when to... You know, all of those things are, are important. As I say, I do think uh, uh, that, you know, already accountabilities to some degree... Uh, we are already buying centrally, you know, several billion pounds worth of things on behalf of departments. The shared services strategies already mean the transactional processes are being done over here for a department working over here. So those things naturally get, you know, but every organisation in the world works like that. My point is that if you, the codification of all of that complexity can take you down a very long road and get very, very complicated quite quickly. Uh, ultimately, the top structure of the civil service, the, whether we've got the right number of agencies, the right number of departments. In the end, you know, uh, I, I, I think those c will evolve and they, they have evolved and they will continue to evolve. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't either have a point of view at the moment about a strong point of view about that. What I do think needs to happen is that the... Um, uh, which is, was in the governance point that I made, what I do think needs to happen is that we need to increase the flows of information, for instance, as between the operating units and the centre. Uh, I, I find that the... Uh, uh, and this is, this is classic organisational stuff. If you get into a world where information is power, it's really not very agile, it's really not very operationally efficient... Um, uh, and there is no reason in a sophisticated world of accountability, just because I see all the information that you have. By the way, it doesn't mean I'm going to come and do your job. Uh, but teaching people that takes time. So I do think that there are things about the information flows that we need to ease up. There's a sort of... And these are behavioural cultural issues, not structural box, boxes, really. I, you know, I, I make no comment about the boxes. They may evolve. Thank you. Um, right here, second row as well. Sorry, the, 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 yes, and then I, I will, we've got quite a good time. I'm Dougal Goodman from the Foundation for Science and Technology. Thank you very much, John, for a very interesting talk. My career anchor is risk management, as you probably remember. Do you think that you have the training in place for general managers and for the functional managers in terms of risk management? Not where we would like to be, Dougal, and you, uh, you and I have had this conversation. I think um, uh, um, and, and this is one area where, uh, you know, across government, um, uh, it is more difficult to get at the clarity of risk management across government because the structures are essentially vertical. So I think that we have further to go on this journey. I think we're getting better. It's interesting when you examine... Uh, one uh, uh, bit of government, you know, we've set up non-executive uh, uh, directors in each of our departments and there are boards in each department. What's interesting about those boards is that, the, is, is that probably universally the most, um, uh, the, the, the bit of those boards that has created most traction happens to be the audit and risk committees. So down the s verticals, they are working and the audit and risk committees are working extremely well. We then bring the chairs of those audit committees together and then we have conversations about the general risk management across the system. Uh, as you, know, you well know, we have no uh, uh, processes, for instance, yet to, necess to necessarily move 
large chunks of resource across from one department to another. Uh, a conversation about priorities across government is a complicated thing to achieve. Um, uh, and risk management and mitigation is about uh, the management of that at a, at a level. So I think we're getting better in the departments. I think we still have some way to go across government as a whole. Thanks. And straight behind here on the aisle. Uh, Oliver Wright from The Times. Just following up on Bronwyn's question on Brexit, given that the most difficult and complicated delivery challenges result in the case of either no deal or a very limited deal, that also has the tightest time frame of less than a year. How can you be confident that, with very little procurement done to set up those systems less than a year away, that we can in any way say that we'll be ready? Um, I believe that we're, we're moving in the... Uh, in, in, as I said before, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think momentum is building. I think we are... Um, uh, uh, the procurements are beginning to happen. They, I mean, you know, the... Actually, curiously... Uh, uh, a great deal of the implementation is, is uh, there's a great deal of technology associated with that implementation uh, in, it, you know, in the old days we'd have sort of done a lot of thinking and then we'd have gone out with some massive procurement that's what you would have seen and you'd have said oh well, that feels better we've got out with it actually the world these days is more agile it's more incremental there are lots and lots of activity there are lots and lots of uh, very you know, relatively small pieces of activity, the sprints here, the sprints there, in, in the multiple projects. Um, uh, so you wouldn't necessarily see what you might deem as the big procurement activity, because actually it is more incremental. And a lot of this is technology, by the way, so a lot of it is of that nature, which is perhaps why you don't see quite, you know, in the, in the, in the conventional sense, the big procurement. There's quite a lot going on that you can't see in that sense. Great. Next one, uh, right here, here in the front. If there's anyone in the next door room who wants to ask a question, could you do the old-fashioned thing of sticking your head around the door, please? <laughs> uh, Sue Street, a former opponent secretary and, and generalist. Um, I'm, I'm very persuaded by a lot of what you say, and uh, I had the benefit through the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice of seeing how the legal function worked across government brilliantly. So... You know, I think, I think a lot of this is right, but I don't quite understand where on your career path you will start the pipeline for people who can manage large organisations to deliver ministerial priorities, which change. So, so where, are, where do your sort of functional specialists acquire that? And, and do you agree that it will remain important to be able to do that? Yes, things? I mean, I, so, so let me, uh, I absolutely, I mean, policy is a core element of what government does. You know, just because I talk about the other ones, that's only because they're sort of not there, whereas the policy is there. And actually, in, pol in the areas of policy, personally, I believe we should be concentrating our policy specialists in a domain in social justice or the social sector or something and so that's a way of building that um, uh, depth of expertise um, uh, but but it's like any career uh, um, uh, and, it, and it may just be sort of spending a bit longer uh, uh, you know seeing the implication um, uh, or, or seeing through the delivery of a solution because we uh, and that is a natural thing um, you, you know, so often uh, we see people uh, sort of, imp you know, creating something, designing something, at least at international level. So, well, that's actually what we're going to do, and then they're off, and, they're, and there's, then, then there is no accountability. So, we, so, in some senses, this is just time. Of course, that means you've got to allow people to progress in post which means you've got to pay them a bit more as they get better in post, and that is more complicated in the current, that's what we've got to redesign. So I don't, I don't see this as a, um, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think a general observation is that people are, flit are moving around too much, uh, so we've got to slow that down. Um, uh, and then the question is, and, and what actually is the career anchor, even of a policy person, right? So it might be economics, or it might be, I don't, you know, whatever it will be, but we need to create a real depth of experience, and I'm not dismissing that at all, it still will remain the core functionality of what, government, what the civil service does for government, will be policy, it's just that I don't think that's enough in the future. And there's no reason why, I mean, you know, as I say, I'm, a, I'm actually an engineer, and I've spent, so you can go away, you get a bit of different experience, you come back, you do a bigger job back in your 
specialism, you go away and you can build. But it has to be planned. It has to be uh, nurtured and that relates to, in my view, uh, a leader's accountability for the development of his or her team. Uh, and I'm not sure, I don't see enough of that in our civil service either. We need to put the responsibility uh, onto leadership for the development of his or her team. And we have structures in the civil service which make that less, a bit less prevalent than I've seen elsewhere. Great. Question at the door. Thanks so much. Greg Rosen, Consultant Director at Reform. Um, you underlined your concern on, on, on the importance of churn and counteracting churn and suggested there were measures you needed to think through to perhaps address that uh, more definitively. What timescale would you put on implementing measures that would address that issue? And we're conscious, I think, most people in this room that this has been a, an issue, a huge issue, for many, many years. Um, Bob Kerslake, in his valedictory lecture in this very room, said that this, that was the most important thing that he wished he'd addressed and hadn't managed to. In that context, given the um, role of the fast stream as a career anchor to some perm sex and the role it plays in, uh, in putting um, churn at the heart of how the civil service works, how do you plan to counteract uh, and provide a counterweight to that within the civil service culture? So I think we've already done it. Uh, I mean, the very fact that we have a, uh, let's, take, uh, let's take the commercial function. Uh, the commercial function has uh, a series of levels of attainment, um, uh, 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 which carry different levels of pay, different remuneration structures, those levels are accredited levels, sometimes in the commercial case, with professional, uh, outside body professional accreditation, so that an individual can come in. By the way, there's a commercial fast stream, so they can come in at the fast stream. We can then offer experiences through the civil service where that person is doing increasingly complex and senior commercial roles. Um, uh, to, this happens today. This can happen today. We just haven't had, you know, time has to pass so that people can do these things. Um, uh, but, for instance, the, the first uh, commercial fast streamers are now just coming off the fast stream. It's been a commercial fast stream. They're now going into roles which are commercial roles uh, across the system. Uh, and then the commercial function is examining and working with those people to build their career in a commercial context. So I think it's already starting to happen. And just the introduction of those... Uh, dimensions, those functional dimensions, allows this to begin. Now, of course, you're not going to see it overnight because it, it takes time for an individual to emerge, uh, but it's already happening in that sense. And then with regard to the sort of pace of which people change, you know, I sort of, I care a bit less, actually, if somebody is really, really good commercial person and actually moves through a series of roles really quickly. I care less about that than moving from here to here to here, over here to here, because, you know, you become a sort of, and you lose anchor. And so I, I think it's the, this is the point that then the other bit is that we have to culturally adjust um, uh, uh, the system to say, actually, I value that set of skills in the way that allows that person to reach the next level of attainment. Um, uh, and then when you get to the top, of course, that's when you've got to be starting to think about, is this person got the skills to manage ministers? Have they got the skills to do the politics? Have they got another different set of skills? And we have to be able to, um, uh, you know, in the way that we do today with policy professionals, we have to do that for commercial professionals, to use my example. And, I, and we haven't quite got there yet, but we're getting there. And, and we've got to be thoughtful about those people to give them the rounded sets of skills so, so that they can emerge and be at the very top of the civil service, but with an anchor which allows them to be a commercial anchor, but with some of those other skills. And in the end, if, you think, if we think about all of our careers, that's how it works. So it's, I think it's already happening, is, your, is the answer to your question. Great. Okay, we've got one last question here. Sorry, another. All right, let's try and squeeze these two in very, 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 very quickly. Um, Susanna from Civil Service World. I just wonder if you can give us any more details on the new success profiles um, 
are they you described them as an expansion of the competency framework but my understanding was that was going to be reviewed from the 2016 workforce plan anyway so is this the kind of new um, competency framework for everyone or is it just for functional people when might we see them roll out just any more details on what that will involve so it is um, it is an expansion because competency remains a perfectly valid um, uh, 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 technique uh, for for um, you know human resource management uh, I just believe it's been overused and to some degree abused in our structure. So what it does is it adds to that. So there's a strength profile, there's behaviours, there's values, there's track record. It is a rounded profile uh, that says actually, um, uh, you know, when you're uh, in- interviewing for a job, it may well be, depending on the job that you're going for, uh, you know, we... we it may well be that I'm much more interested in what you've done before, your track record, what others say about you, um, and, your, and your strengths, experience-based strengths, than I am about whether you, you know, you feel, you, you, you've been able to fill the competency framework in. We have overused the competency. There's nothing wrong with it. We've just overused it. And, and I believe it is, therefore, um, uh, unhelpful to us. And that's why... So it, it is actually... It is literally on the verge of being... Introduced, we're piloting in two very big departments right now. Uh, it's proving very successful, and we will be rolling it out from this point. I think it's actually a really, really important, um, you know, under the surface kind of thing that I think will have a big change over time. Thank you. Just squeeze in one last question. Okay. Uh, Vicky Price, former uh, joint head of the Government Economic Service. Uh, I mean, given that there are a number of professions, and I'm glad, John, you mentioned the economists, but of course there are social scientists and statisticians, uh, OR specialists and so on, but particularly for the economists, how do you keep them motivated and in the civil service, and how do you protect them when you get statements like the one from David Davies saying, I don't read those impact assessments because I don't believe in the models that economists produce? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your... That, sorry, uh, from where? How do we uh, keep the economists motivated? How do you keep economists motivated, economists when, motivated when... when there are statements from uh, the likes of David Davis uh, saying that I don't actually read the impact assessments and I don't actually believe in what uh, models the economists have put together. What mechanism have you got to, to protect and support these days uh, the professions from perhaps becoming demotivated and wanting to go and work <coughs> elsewhere? Well, any leader's role is... I mean, so, you know, we love all our children, right? Um, uh, uh, and I think it is, you know, I mean... all. We, it's, you know, the civil service does really complicated stuff. It therefore needs all sorts of uh, skills and capabilities. By the way, uh, the statisticians and the analysts are also uh, joining together, are creating more coherent um, uh, uh, career paths and all of those things. So I think the answer to your question is that, it, and that's why I made the point about leadership. I, I think that, um, uh, uh, you know, a leader's role uh, is, I always say to leaders, you know, you've got two jobs. One is to set context and the second is to develop people. Um, uh, and um, it's not obvious that, you know, and that is why our leadership model has to, and it's one of the things that I said at the beginning of my talk, our leadership model has to adjust. This is not about being the smartest person in the room. This is about actually enabling every other smart person in the room to be successful. Uh, and that is what leadership is all about. And you know, having that model and adjusting that model because we have tended a little bit that the smartest people in the room or the people with the most face time or that, you know, that, and that is not in my world what really matters. What really matters is exactly what you say. A leader's job is to motivate and align and move a, an organisation forward where everybody is feeling valued and contributing. And that's what I think we've got to do. It's sort of simple as that, actually. John, let me ask you one thing finally. Uh, as I said at the beginning, this is an agenda and a, a cause that the IFG very much backs. You referred to uh, the, uh, the, how, do, how do we fund the functions, and there was a reference to funding the centre. Is there embedded in what you've said a quiet call for more money? And do you need that to bring about? Not necessarily what you've, more. What you've I've, talked about? I think there's a there's a um, uh, and I, I mean I and the reason I made it carefully is because it's very easy to pile money into a group of people and they just sort of do things for their own benefit. And that is, you know, that's like the enemy of success here. So we've got to be really, really careful. And therefore, the discipline of saying, well, you're, I mean, you know, you've got to go and ask this department whether or not what you're doing is adding value and then they can fund it. Mm-hmm. 
The problem with that is that there are certain things which actually, I mean, that is a deeply inefficient way, actually. If, if you've got something really good that has to happen, it's a very, very inefficient way of making it happen. It, it is also a very disciplined way to ensure that we don't waste money. Mm. I recognise the tension. And therefore, we've got to approach this relatively carefully. But I do think there are examples mm. where, um, in a strategic sense, mm. we can accelerate the changes that we require to make by having that conversation. That's what I think. Mm. And uh, that conversation in the current context of the way it's always been done is a more difficult conversation, is, is, you know, is not easy to do today. Mm. And that's why I've raised it, because mm. I intend to begin that conversation. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean more money. It, means, uh, it probably means you know, um, uh, I'll spend it here instead of here, mm. or here instead of here, 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 and here. Mm. Um, uh, and I'll do it once. Right? Mm. I mean, we, we, you know, we have today, we have, it's tiny, you would never see this, right? We've built a, a little tiny, in fact, we've built several of them, uh, uh, the ways that uh, uh, an IT platform that allows people to pay, that allows mm. people to pay government, and I can't remember whether it's people paying government or government paying people, I can't remember which way it is. It's being used more than a hundred times in more than a hundred places across government today. It's one of those little common platforms that is being used. And actually the truth is that would have, that would have been paid for a hundred times mm. or we can do it once. Mm. Mm. That's the sort of thing. And that's mm. a tiny little thing. Mean, you wouldn't even, you know, they don't even hit the radar, mm. but it's happening. Mm. And that, mm. that at a bigger scale is the mm. sort of conversation we've got to have. Thank you. We're going to have to stop there. Thank you for some great questions. Thank you for coming. Thank you again to the Oracle team. Most of all, thank you to John Manzoni. <laughs>